And please pray with me. Uh, Lord, here we are again, hungry and thirsty, weak and wandering, weak and wounded, sick and sore, uh, but before you and your throne. And you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that you're graciously disposed toward us, that you've gathered us here with you and before you uh, to give us good things. Lord, we thank you that even as we're aware of that we're not all we would wish we were, Lord, by your grace, we're not what we once were. And we thank you for that. And we thank you that you have been so gracious by your spirit to give us this word, to give us the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you knead it into our hearts deeply this morning that we would be changed, that we would come to a greater apprehension of the greatness of our Savior. Lord, that you would grow us in faith and not just for our own personal benefit, but Lord, for the good of your people, for the good of this city, indeed, for the good of the world and the glory of your name. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, five or six years ago, as these things go, a a video went viral. This video was called Lion versus Water Buffalo versus Crocodile. And, you know, it's one of those kind of cringy nature videos where uh, a baby water buffalo calf, baby water buffalo, uh, got separated from the herd by, by, a, by a pride of lions. And they, they managed to drag it into this lake. And it's just the most painful thing. They are slowly, methodically attempting to take the life of this little animal. Until you see a little movement in the water and all of a sudden this crocodile comes out of nowhere and drags the uh, baby water buffalo away from the lions. And, you know, that gives, I remembered that video this week, and by the way, you ought to watch the video, it, it actually amazingly ends well. <laughs> um, but, but that little part of the scenario gives you a flavor, I think, of this psalm and uh, of where David was at this particular point in his life, going from the frying pan into the fire, going from the, the mouths of the lions into the, the mouth of the crocodile. Now, we're clued in, of course, on the specifics of this struggle. Uh, When you look at the superscript of this psalm, we didn't print it in the bulletin, but uh, it is included, and it lets us know that this psalm was written uh, during the time when the Philistines had seized David in Gath. Now, about a month ago, David or uh, Greg preached on Psalm 52, and there's some connection here. That uh, was written during another tough time in David's life that just preceded this when he was forced to run from King Saul uh, to a city of priests called Nob because uh, he felt, because Saul felt his throne was being threatened by David. And so he decided the only solution to that problem was to kill him. So David goes to the city of Nob, this city of priests, and the head priest there, a guy named Ahimelech, helps David out. He gives him some food. He gives him a weapon. Uh, but there was another guy lurking around. We've referred to him a few times in this series, a guy named Doeg the Edomite, who saw uh, this person rendering uh, aid and comfort to David, and he reports it back to Saul. And Saul uh, is filled with rage. He orders Doeg to go, back to, the, uh, to go to that city to kill this head priest, which he does. And, and for good measure, he not only kills Ahimelech, he kills uh, his family, and he kills 85 other priests and their families. 
Um, it was a lot tougher to be a, a pastor in those days. Um, so now we come to Psalm 56. Uh, this was a psalm composed in, in, kind of in the days between. Uh, the days between David's time in Nob and the slaughter of those priests. And it's really one of the low points in David's life, uh, this time when he was in Gath. You see, he, once he knew that he'd been ratted out by Doeg to Saul, uh, he felt not only the need to flee the city, but to, but to actually flee the country. So he goes to Gath, and Gath is a Philistine city. Uh, and he goes there with the hopes that maybe, maybe that would put him out of the reach of, of Saul. But it turns out that uh, he's gone from the jaws of the lion to the jaws of the crocodile. Uh, and you get a sense of the desperation of his situation. First of all, he's alone. And, and not just, you know, by himself. Of course, he's in a, in a thriving city. Uh, but David's alone in that he doesn't have any of his people with him. A number of years ago, I read a book called The Lonely City, in which the author, Olivia Lang, talks about her experience of struggling with being alone. And it just so happened that she endured that struggle in one of the busiest, most densely populated cities in the world, New York City. And she asked this question as she's exploring what it means to be lonely. She asked, what does it feel like to be lonely? She says it feels like being hungry like being hungry when everyone around you is readying for a feast. It feels shameful and alarming. And over time, these feelings radiate outward, making the lonely person increasingly isolated, increasingly estranged. That gives us a sense of what David is experiencing in Gath. He is spiritually hungry, ashamed, alarmed, isolated, estranged. And not only did he get out of Nob by the skin of his teeth, leaving, hardly, leaving with, with, without hardly anything, with no provisions or people or protection, he's in Gath. And, and that name might ring a bell because it just so happens to be the hometown of Goliath, who David famously had killed when he was a younger man. And Goliath was the hero of Gath. He was the pride of the hometown. So just days before, when David was in Nob, he asked Ahimelech if he could spare any food or any weapons, and Ahimelech gave him a little food, and he happened to give him a weapon, which just so happened to be Goliath's sword. So here's David, just imagine, you know, running to Gath as the guy who had killed the hometown hero, lugging along with him what was probably one of the most recognizable weapons in all the world, given what we know of Gath's size and everything else. He's in a situation that would be laughable if it weren't so treacherous. And it speaks to the desperation. One writer even said to have fled from Saul to Gath of all places, the hometown of Goliath, took the courage of despair. And sure enough, finding safe harbor in Gath didn't exactly work out. Word got to the Philistine king who asked, isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? That Saul has slain thousands, but David has slain tens of thousands? And, and that's, a, that's a big deal because the big hit that everyone was dancing to in Israel uh, about killing thousands and tens of thousands had to do with killing thousands and tens of thousands of Philistines. 
So Gath turned out to be every bit as dangerous for David as Saul and his people were, if not more. So that now he's in this situation where he's in double trouble, doubly encircled, being pursued by Saul, but now surrounded by people who, you know, are eager for uh, his demise. So it's no surprise that when David, when word got back to David about what the king had said, uh, we find out in 1 Samuel that David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Very much afraid. And that depth of fear comes through as we begin to look at this psalm. Uh, especially in the first couple of verses, uh, and then he elaborates on that fear in verses 5 to 9. He begins really by describing just the visceral intensity of the fear. Um, he describes it with three words that he repeats twice in those first couple of verses. Those words are tramples, attack, and then the phrase all day long. Uh, the word we have for trample here is often translated as something like pursued or hotly pursued, which is to say that David just feels like a guy who is being relentlessly tracked down, incapable of escape. He says he's not only been attacked, but, but all day long. That gives you a sense of there is no rest in this situation. And all of this adds up to a sense of just being completely overwhelmed, not knowing what to do. But while those first couple of verses really describe the intensity of his situation, in verses 5 through 9, he comes at the fear, but in a different way. There he is trying to gain some insight into the fear. He, he wants to understand it as he prays. He doesn't, in other words, just want to sort of skate around on the surface of his situation and go into panic mode and just sort of try to fix everything. He wants to get to the source of it. He wants to sort some stuff out as he prays. And one of his insights is that this relentless attack is not just against him personally. It is against, he says, his cause. You see, David's not just a fugitive on the run. He's on the run as God's rightful king. There's a cause. And what that means is that what's going on between the old king and the king in waiting is more than just a power struggle. It's, it's essentially a promise struggle. So David is persisting in prayer, trying to figure out how it could be that despite all of what appears to be evidence to the contrary, God's word and God's promises remain true and reliable. And, and maybe you've gone through this experience in your life, you know, where you're working through these kinds of situations where you're, you're going, Lord, I know you love me, but none of this feels like you love me. I, I know you say you'll protect me, uh, but why am I in such danger? I know you say you're a father to me, but why do I feel like an orphan? David's working through all of those apparent contradictions in his life in this psalm. He's struggling and striving to stick with God's promise. There's a promise struggle going on, not just a power struggle. But David knows enough to know that this, um, the truth of God's covenant promise to him. He prays as one, as, as Paul does in Ephesians 6, knowing that he's not just wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the ruler's authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. He knows he's contending on that level, which is why he doesn't characterize what Saul is doing and what he's undergoing in Gath, you know, as um, just a competition between two causes. He's saying, 
Lord, defend my cause. And that's why he characterizes what's happening to him as criminal, as, as a war against God's good purposes, against God's promise. He sees it as criminal. He's, that's why he says in verse 7, in essence, may it never be. He asks the, God, he asks the Lord to, to never let them get away with it, but to cast them all down. Now, the superscript in the psalm that I referred to earlier certainly locates us with what's going on historically, but I also think it's helpful to pay attention to what's going on musically, which sounds kind of strange, but, but, but I want to remember, you know, these, were, these, were, these, these psalms were sung. They were written as songs. I heard an interview with the musician David Byrne the other day. David Byrne famously is the lead singer of the great band, The Talking Heads, and he he also happens to be a writer and a visual artist, and he, and he pointed something out um, as he was talking about his involvement with the arts, and he, he essentially said that a song has the capacity to do what no other artistic medium has the capacity to do, and that is that it can take two conflicting or opposing ideas and work them at the same time, which, which is extremely difficult, if not impossible, to pull off in a book or an essay, or a painting, or a film, right? So he says, you know, for example, you can have a buoyant, joyous melody with melancholy lyrics. You can have melancholy melody with joyous, buoyant lyrics. You can work those two things at the same time to create a cohesive whole, right? And, and I, that's not an unusual thing in music at all, and I get into that just to remember, again, something important about the Psalms is we're not reading prose. David didn't just sit down and write theological essays, okay? He wrote songs. And that's a challenge to remember, especially since these melodies have been lost to history. But I like to imagine that this melody, a melody we're told is according to the doves of the far-off terebinths. Can that be a melancholy melody? I, I don't think so. Maybe, maybe it could. But I like to imagine that might have been a buoyant, joyous counterpoint to the seriously melancholy content of David's life. You might remember in Psalm 55, David actually had doves on his mind there as well. He, he dreamed of becoming like a dove to do what? To escape his situation, to escape the troubles. But here I wonder if he's got doves on the brain and longing to not escape his situation, but actually to engage with God's promises to fly to them, to land on them, to roost on the certainty of God's purpose and promises. And, and actually, I don't even think, you know, I know some of this may sound a little strange to you as I talk about this, but, but I don't even think we have to speculate on this point because, in fact, great songwriter that he is, David does that in the, for, in, in the song itself by writing a killer chorus about the promises of God. This song has a hook. And like all hooks, it is an earworm chorus that David doesn't want any of us who would be singing along with this or reading it to get out of our heads. The chorus is repeated in verse 4 and 10 and 11, and the truth of it is really summed up in verse 3, and it is simply this, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In fact, you know, years ago, and this will date me a little bit, when our kids were little, we had a little CD player. Um, and uh, we used to play a little CD of Bible songs, and one of them was uh, this, when I'm afraid, I, I will put my trust in you. 
And even as I read that phrase to this day, that tune is in my head. It will be there forever. I'm not going to sing it to you, but that's the hook. That's what David wants to roost on, to live on, to get in our heads. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. And, and I want to notice something in that, in that verse that, that's so obvious that we might actually miss it. And that is that David doesn't say, if I am afraid, I will trust in you. He says, when I am afraid, I'll trust in you. And I think that's important because it's very easy to get down on ourselves about just the mere fact of our fears, isn't it? Uh, you know, it's, I, I would say maybe especially in a culture like ours that really prizes uh, self-reliance and individual autonomy. Um, it is very often the message that we receive when we're afraid, when we, when we even have the courage to admit that, you know, that, uh, you know, the question comes back, well, you know, I wonder uh, why you can't get over that fear. Or, you know, why does that fear keep showing up in your life? Or why, won't, why can't you conquer that fear or get past that fear or put that fear in its proper perspective or whatever else, you know, advice might be coming your way when it comes to fear. But for David, fear is just a given. It's not if I fear, I will trust in you. It's when. So the issue isn't developing strategies to somehow you know, get away from the fears so that we can transform ourselves into fearless people, okay? His perspective is that the fears come. They're there. And the only issue is what do you do when they're there? And that's really critical because nothing will so surely reveal your functional God and mine as surely as what we do when the fear comes. I mean, it is axiomatic. Where you run when fear seizes you that is, functionally, the object of your trust, just is. Which is why he talks about dealing with fear, not in terms of toughing it out, but in terms of trust. And I, I mean, let's be honest, even if you see yourself as a particularly tough person whose strategy is to tough it out, you're trusting in what you imagine to be your toughness. That's your object of faith. So the question, when I am afraid, what do I trust in, is really important. Um, David, uh, in another of his psalms, I think we get a little window into where he's particularly tempted, where, where he might run uh, when fear comes. He, he says in Psalm 20, uh, in a very vivid picture of what you might imagine uh, he would put his trust in as king, he says, well, some trust in chariots and horses, but we, I, trust in the name of the Lord our God. So, so here he is now. I mean, you can imagine... Um, him thinking, man, if I only had some chariots and some horses. I've got chariots and horses coming after me. I, would, I, I could use some chariots and horses, Lord. And yet, he presses through and says, actually, my trust is in the Lord. The word for this trust, of course, is faith. And, and to better understand that this is faith, it might help to put an accent into the statement when we read it. Um, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. So we need to dispense with the idea that faith is something akin to a wish or a feeling or a, a sensibility. I remember years ago, George Michael had a big hit called Faith. And it began with the phrase, well, I guess it would be nice. And then he goes on to muse over, you know, the things he hopes for in his life. Well, faith is not guessing. 
Faith is not hoping for what might hopefully someday become nice in our lives, okay? The writer of Hebrews defines faith in terms of assurance, in terms of confidence, not in ourselves, but in the object of our faith, in terms of the Lord. P.T. Forsyth, the great theologian, says that faith is not the mere sense of dependence on God, but something much more definite, positive, and real. It is the sinner's trust in God the Redeemer. That's faith. So David says, my trust is in you, in God the Redeemer, which is to say in the same breath, I'm not putting my trust anywhere else, not in my circumstances or my skills or my wealth or my power, chariots or horses, anything. Which raises another question, and again, it might sound kind of obvious, but it absolutely needs to be asked. How does David know that he can trust God? How does he know that? How, did he, how does he know he should trust in God? Well, there's another truth repeated in the chorus, not once, not twice, but three times, and it is this. God's word I praise. David has reverence for God's word. In the broadest sense, he's praising God for his word because through it, he's come to know who God is, what he's like, and what his will is for our lives. And look, sure, there's a lot we can learn about God by looking to nature, okay? That, that's important. You can, you can read some information about that in the opening chapters of Romans. But no one ever looked at the sangres or the sunset and concluded, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin. David didn't look at the desert or the sky and learn that when his days are done, God will raise up from you offspring and will establish his kingdom and he'll build a house for my name and will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. None of that information came to anybody naturally, but it did come scripturally through God's word. So David praises God for revealing himself to him specially in and through his word. Because apart from his word, he wouldn't know anything about his, his person and his work and his will. David says, I, I know I can trust in you because you've given me your word. God's word was absolutely critical to and central to his life. And look, I, I, I am not a person who ever encourages people to be hypersensitive. Um, far from it, especially these days. Everybody calm down, Okay. Um, don't, be, don't be so sensitive, and, and I'm including myself in that. Um, but, but I do want to not only encourage, but urge hypersensitivity when it comes to our posture towards God's Word. We ought to be very sensitive to this, especially since we live in an age in which skepticism toward His Word isn't just sort of allowed, it's, it's, it's expected, and the general character of that skepticism is something like this. If I don't like what I'm reading in God's Word, or if I find it hard to believe um, uh, because I don't, uh, if I find it hard to believe because I don't like it, and because I find it hard to believe, I reject it out of hand, and I don't want to hear anything else about it. And, and I do want to acknowledge that if part of your regular experience in reading the Bible doesn't involve not liking it and finding it hard to believe, I've got to ask the question if you're actually reading it, okay? That's, it's inevitable. 
That's not even the issue. The issue is this default position we so readily take that the problem is with God's word and not with me. You know, that the problem is that, that, that it is flawed and not me. And that's where it is a, is a good and healthy thing to, when we come to those places to say, actually, I understand that I am flawed. Lord, um, I'm not understanding this right now. Help me to understand that, this. So aside from, you know, the scriptural issues in play, that, that's, you know, that's just a healthy posture to take in life anyway, isn't it? I mean, apply this to your relationships. I don't think it's ever a good thing when we're challenged or find things uh, difficult to hear that we just plug our ears, say we don't want to hear it, and end the relationship. It's never a good thing. In fact, it's fair to say that the least healthy relationships are those in which we're just told what we want to hear and are never challenged. But the best, richest, truest relationships are those in which truth and love are at work as they are in God's word in full measure so that we know that we're loved deeply and, and because we're loved so deeply from time to time, we're told hard truths that might be hard to hear and understand but we know ultimately are good for us. And God, through his word, is that kind of friend. And he loves us in that kind of way. Loving us enough not to just tell us what we want to hear and fluff our pillows, but what we need to hear, even if it's really deeply challenging. And look, the consequences, and I think David certainly would know of this uh, fact from God's word, that refusing to hear, hear his word and trust it uh, is dire. It bears remembering that the entire tragedy of history and humanity began with skepticism towards God's word. When the devil asked, did God really say? And chipped away at God's word. What a tragedy. So David praises God's word because through it, he's come to know God's person, his work, his character, his posture toward him. So that he's set free from the burden of trying to impose his desire on a situation allowing God's word to interpret his life and his circumstances for him. So he praises God's word in the broadest sense, I think also in the narrowest sense, uh, because he uh, remembers the particular word brought to him by the prophet Samuel, assuring him that whatever the circumstances, the Lord will prove faithful, that, that he would come to be king of Israel, that through his regency would come a redeemer. But I also want to notice this, and it's really important. Um, God's word doesn't just provide answers. It certainly does that, but it also prompts questions. And it does that for David uh, in this prayer twice in verse 4 and 11. He asks a question, uh, one prompted by remembering God's word. And the question is this, what can man do to me? Now, that's quite a question uh, when you think about it, um, because to, the answer to the question, what can man do to me, is in fact quite a bit, especially when you consider his circumstances, uh, that he was, the circumstances he was in when he asked this question. You know, when it comes to the question of what can man do to David at this particular time and place and circumstances, it's kind of head spinning. He could be captured, imprisoned, tortured, humiliated, defamed, maimed, stripped of power, position, hearth, home, killed. And yet, in asking the question, he implies the answer, doesn't he? Um, David's answer in asking the question, what can man do to me, is nothing. 
Man can't do anything to me. Like, of course, there's all kinds of things that could be done to me and may well yet be done to me, but, but it might as well be nothing. And you, you got to ask the question, how does he possibly arrive at that answer? Well, I think in this way, the only way you can answer that question with nothing comes by way of getting hold of something so massive that whatever man may do to you is a big fat nothing by comparison. Does that make sense? Let me try to illustrate it with a story. There's this old codger I used to run into when I was in Texas. And he happened to be a man of tremendous wealth. He also happened to be a man who uh, enjoyed letting people know of his tremendous wealth. And he once told a friend of mine who had a very good job, and by my estimation, probably a salary in the six figures, he told this friend of mine that he got a check in the mail every week that exceeded his annual salary. And, and look, a six-figure salary is nothing to, to sneeze at. You can live well on that, but from this man's perspective, in light of what he had, in light of his massive wealth, a six-figure salary may as well be nothing. He could leave that, he could accidentally throw that check away and probably no skin off his nose, right? And, and I just use that as a little bit of an illustration to give us some idea of how David can see that whatever in the world may throw his way, he can regard as nothing because he has already gotten hold of something so big, so massive in his relationship with the Lord so that he knows that whatever the circumstances, he's secure because he has a Redeemer. He has the promise of his God and Redeemer. Critically, David comes to understand this not from a position of strength, but from a position of weakness. Not from a position of of uh, wealth, but from a position of poverty, from a position of desperation, not a position of comfort. I don't think he could have learned that from any other position because he comes to know all that he has only when he's dispossessed of everything he might imagine he needed. Right? That's the circumstance God used to show him where real life is where the real resources are. In fact, he came to understand in that not only God's good intentions toward him, but, as, but astoundingly, a real renewed sense of God's intimacy with him. Ver, verse 8 is really one of the most tender assurances you'll find in the Bible. David, David says, you've kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? I can remember, you know, many of us have experienced the stage in life when you and your friends are having children, um, and uh, I can remember a friend of ours, who, you know, their firstborn, and she would sit by the crib and count the breaths of the baby. She was so locked in, so tender toward this child, so consumed with their well-being, and there's something of that in, in uh, what David describes here, that, that the Lord is like a, a doting father who knows how many times the baby turns over in a night. David's assured that the Lord doesn't just know of him, but he knows him. Um, some, some Bible scholars translate tossings as something different than just restless sleep, but as something more akin to wanderings. Um, I kind of like that dimension of it because it, it means not only does the Lord know me in my restlessness, he, he, he knows and loves me in my rebelliousness. 
You know, he, David, you know, to put a finer ter- point on it, David's saying, you know how many times I've run from you? And yet, those repeated wanderings haven't kept you from running after me again and again and again. He knows David's failings, and he knows his frailty. David says, you're, you're intimately familiar with the tears I've cried. You, you keep those tears in a bottle, not despising my weakness, but capturing them before they even hit the ground. Like, you want to be near my brokenness. You don't despise it. You, you don't hate that about me, but you, you know, in a sense, know that. You, you know that about me more than I, even I do. It's like a precious, precious possession to you. And it's in knowing that the Lord knows the depths of his failures and frailty that he's not only, not only not rejected him, but intimately embraces him as his own child, that David is able to see the truth about himself and the truth about his Savior. But, you know, even as we, as we look at this, I mean, I, I, I am confident that there, there are those among us who, you know, are like, okay, thank you, John for that, um, but how is it possible to trust in the Lord when I'm so afraid? You know, when I think of my circumstances right now, when I think of what could be done to me right now, I tremble. I don't trust. Well, there's a little remark at the end of verse 9 that I think is, again, easy to overlook, but it's of great significance. It, It doesn't merely say that God is aware of me. It actually says He is for me. He, He is on my side. His attention and affection is mine. He is all in for me. And the way we know that to be true, to know the the way we know He is for us is because He has come to us. He came to us in the person of His only Son, Jesus. He came into this story. This story, which is a microcosm of what is true of all of us, that, that in our humanity, we are utterly failed. We are always tossing and turning. We are always running for, from God. We are a humanity that is frail and failed and has cried oceans and oceans of tears. We are a humanity gripped by fear. And, and he came into that, taking on our humanity, bearing the full weight of it, fulfilling the law that was my condemnation, taking upon himself the fate that should have been mine and enduring the death that sin should have delivered to me. He did that for me and for us. The, the proof of God's love is Jesus. And when you look to Jesus, you see the God who, was willing, who willingly broke his own heart and crushed his own spirit so that we would know He is for us, so that we would know in our weakness and despair His fatherly affection is toward us in Christ. I know He's near to me in my brokenness because He's broken for me. I know He's near to me when I'm crushed because He was crushed for me. That's the proof of God's love. The psalm ends with David praying that he'll perform vows to God and render thank offerings to Him. And that's a, that sounds like a fairly forceful commitment David's making, Uh, But it's vital to see that the only reason he can make it is because God has already done that for him. He's already fulfilled his promise. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Jesus had Psalm 56.13 on his mind, I'm sure, when he assured his followers in John 8, telling them, I, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's the one who keeps our feet from falling because he walked the brutal paths of the heaviness of a human life without sin. He did all that so that we could walk through life with all its fears and troubles in God's light, in Jesus, trusting in him. So that we could say that because of him, I lack nothing, I'm in possession of everything, and we can even ask, what can man do to me? Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you don't despise our weakness, our restlessness, our rebellion. We thank you that your promises are sure and true and that the proof of God's love to us is this, that you sent your one and only Son. Not to just straighten us out, but to save us. Not to, you know load a bunch of new regulations on us or to ask us to tough it out, but to redeem us, to deliver us from death to life. Lord, we thank you that because of your word, because of who you are, because what you have done in history and Jesus, because of what you did in redemption and because you rule and reign and, are, and will return, we can say that when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. Lord, I pray that we would direct that trust this morning. Um, I know that there are many of us who are feeling pretty feeble. Greg referred to it earlier that we're tired, we're worn out. Uh, these are fraught days. These are days of fear. Uh, we, we, you know, we live in a culture that absolutely feeds on fear. There are entire media operations that run on that like gasoline does in a car. So, Lord, would you, help, would you work into us faithfulness that we would look to Jesus, that we would look to his kingship and his kingdom, and that we would long for his return, and that we would come to this table as you ask us to do with faith, which is not, again, you know, some inner toughness we're working up in ourselves or a feeling or anything. It is, it is looking to you. So we can come hungry and thirsty. In fact, I think you would encourage that. That's why you gave us a meal. We come hungry and thirsty, trusting you to feed us. And so, Lord, would we come in faith, however small, however great, but directed to you? And, and Lord, would you even give us the grace of repentance? Um, I know this week I've, put, I've misplaced trust all over the place. So give us the grace of repudiating every other trust that we would uh, find, that we would direct our trust to you. Meet us at this table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.